0: This episode is brought to you by Osprey. Tired of your tattered old climbing pack? It's time you met the Zealot from Osprey. Osprey was born at the foot of the Sierras and came of age in the ranges, deserts, and canyons around Cortez, Colorado. And ever since, they've been elevating adventure through innovative pack design along the way. When it comes to climbing, their Zealot series is purpose-built and athlete-tested with ballistic nylon to defy years of dirt bagging. Their Zealot 40 is a proper crag bag made with the same attention to detail and carrying comfort that Osprey is known for. And their Zealot 30 is made for your days that take you from work to the gym using dual compartments to keep your everyday carrying and climbing gear separate. The Zealot is available online at osprey.com or at your local retailer. Hey everyone, Tommy Caldwell here You know, everyone, at least in the climbing world these days, is trying to figure out ways to live more intentionally, to live a less impactful life. And one of the best things we as climbers can do to make that happen is to support and buy things from the companies that are doing the same thing, the companies that are figuring out ways to lower their carbon footprint, lower their chemical usage, make their products out of recycled materials, make products that just don't wear out. And, you know, the only company that's doing that well in the ropes and hardware. Space is Edelrid. They've been innovating the best products for over 100 years. They invented the sit harness. These days they make unquestionably the most high quality ropes, the lightest weight carabiners, and really they're just awesome all around. So check them out at www.climbgreen.com. Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and this is episode three of season five to live and die in Yosemite. We started off this season down in Mexico in El Patracio Chico for a couple of interviews we recorded, but for this one we're going to go down to Yosemite. This podcast originally started off as like a book on tape podcast. Had this idea and implemented it into the first couple seasons of the podcast. My books aren't on audiobook platforms, but I love the idea and I ran it by a few friends and The first couple seasons are me just reading a book. And so it started off as this storytelling podcast and then evolved into talking um, to mostly authors of zine pieces and I think that's a super cool component. And these days I meet a lot of younger climbers that only know of the podcast and don't know of our printed zine. But since we have volume 23 coming out, hitting the mailboxes right now, I thought I'd read you all my story from that issue. I really will just let this speak for itself and say that if you really appreciate the print version of the zine, please, please, please subscribe to it. It's only 30 bucks plus shipping a year for two issues. And things are getting really dicey and tough right now with print, but I am committed to keeping it going. And I can't do it without you. So um, check out our site, climbingzine.com. You can find links to subscribe there and you can also find the This episode of the Dirtback State of Mind podcast is sponsored by Kilter. Looking for a fun way to train at home or at the gym? Check out the Kilterboard. The Kilterboard has innovative light up holds, a progressive app with animated functions, climbs for all abilities, and two layouts to choose from with large international online communities for each. There are over 66,000 problems in the original Kilterboard layout, and the newer Home Boulder layout comes with over 6,300 problems. You can set, tick climbs, make shareable playlists, watch send videos for motivation, and beta and even add your own videos to share with other users. The new map feature helps you find and connect to kilter boards nearest you. Kilter has multiple wall sizes and package options available, so we can help you get a kilter board in almost any space. Check out Kilter at settercloset.com and look for more information in our show notes. This episode is also sponsored by Scarpa. Scarpa's approach to climbing shoe design mirrors their approach to the pursuit of climbing itself. They strive to evolve and incorporate new ideas and techniques every step of the way. They refine their strengths, train their weaknesses, and build on each success. Scarpa has been bolstering its climbing shoe foundations by continuing to create versatile, high-quality designs to satisfy the needs of climbers across a range of disciplines and skill levels. For more information, visit scarpa.com and look for a link in our show notes. All right, let's get into the episode. Though I've been dangling off the cliffs of Yosemite for 20 plus years now, I couldn't help but feel overwhelmed with intimidation at the base of the roof crack known as separate reality. Taylor and I had just rappelled in and it was his lead. Taylor is a relatively new climbing partner and he's about 10 years younger than me. Most of my regular climbing partners go back to as long as I've been climbing, back to where it all began in Gunnison, Colorado. All of my best friends are also my best climbing partners. Tying in with someone is a great act of faith and trust. I don't think it can be overstated, and some climbers can be too casual about this. Perhaps I've got mental battle scars from all my near misses over the years. But if I tie in with you, I trust you. And if that trust is broken, it's a hard thing to get back. For the last couple of years, Taylor and I have really been clicking. I needed that. I'm in my early forties and many of my climbing partners have started families and thus they have less free time for trips. That's not to say I don't climb with my friends who have kids. Many are still quite motivated. It's just changed up the rotation a bit. This was my first trip back to Yosemite in almost a decade. For the first 10 years of my climbing life, I was obsessed with Yosemite obsessed with learning how to live and climb on a wall. Those days with my best of friends led to the best experiences, now my treasured memories and stories. Those Yosemite days culminated in the ascent of the Salathe Wall on El Cap. Nothing fancy, not even close to free, but we clawed our way up it, and it felt like a once in a lifetime accomplishment. And then I moved to Durango and got obsessed with the creek. I was tired of poop tubes, portal ledges, haul bags, and all the other elements that make big wall climbing seem like a construction gig. I wanted a different kind of fight, a different kind of glory, and I found it on those crimson walls of Wingate that seemed to be endless in the land that is now Bears Ears National Monument. It was the Yosemite facelift that brought me back to the valley. 10 years before when we did the Salathe, we just happened to be there when the facelift was going on, and I was very impressed with the effort. Climbers were all over the valley, cleaning up trash and having a great time doing it. By day, we picked up dirty diapers left on the side of the trail, and by night, we partied down. And in the end, thousands of pounds of trash were cleaned up, leaving Yosemite a lot cleaner than it was before. I'm a very sentimental person. As I traveled to Yosemite, I thought of everything that had happened in the last decade since I've been there. I thought of the climbing legends that had died there, especially Dean Potter. I used to see him around all the time there. When I was 22, that was like seeing Michael Jordan next to you on the basketball court. Since I'd been there, El Cap had been free soloed. The Dawn Wall happened. Countless wildfires had scorched California. Personally, I'd been engaged, got a dog, bought a house, called off the engagement, and ended up with partial custody of the dog. A dog named Hope that I completely love and adore. During COVID quarantines, I fell into depression and loneliness. Therapy in nature helped me crawl out of it. So many other things happened too, but my mind just started reminiscing in a way that only nature makes it reminisce. Yosemite, to me, is nothing short of a love affair. And all this sentimentality is connected to this love of land we call Yosemite. As I left Colorado, people said things like, I hope it's not too smoky out there, or I just got back from Cali. The air quality was terrible. This is the new normal, the global warming stuff they told us would happen in college in my environmental studies courses in the early 2000s, and now it's our reality. For this trip, though, I got super lucky. An early fall storm rolled in, dropping snow high in the mountains and clearing out the smoke. I spent my first couple days in the east side with Mark Grundon, one of my original homies and climbing partners. Mark and I have always had great climbing chemistry. We have both gone down the path of not only establishing new routes, but replacing bolts on old ones. We sampled perfect granite and also checked out Clark Canyon, a cool volcanic sport climbing area near his home of Mono Lake. While climbing, we both noted anchors that needed to be replaced and potential for new lines. Both of our brains just worked that way. Soon enough, it was time to go to Yosemite. The storm had cleared out, and the facelift was beginning. When I told people I was going to Yosemite, many asked what my objectives were, and I told them I didn't have any. I just wanted to be out there like visiting an old friend with no intention other than hanging out. If we talked a bit longer, I would reveal I had a small objective to get on separate reality. That climb had lingered in my mind ever since I saw a picture of Wolfgang Gulich free-soloing the line in an old climbing magazine. Even decades after seeing that photo, I can still picture it in my mind's eye, the exposure below, the strength of Wolfgang. I mentioned the climb to Mark, but he would be working as a guide during the facelift, so he'd only be able to hang out at night and not join me on the climb. I told him maybe I would save the climb to experience it with him. Don't save climbs, Mark said, as if it was a motto someone had passed down to him. I got in my rental truck and drove over Tioga into the valley. At the moment, I was thankful to be alone, thankful for the reflection. I'd never driven into the valley alone, always with a climbing partner or girlfriend. The sight of the ranger station at the top of a pass was a bit of a buzzkill. When I started climbing in Yosemite, rangers were the enemy. The relationship between climbers and rangers wasn't great. One that goes all the way back to the societal revolutions of the 1960s. Rangers had rudely awakened me in the middle of the night, tried to bust me with weed, and generally were gun-toting assholes who were jealous of the freedom and swagger of dirtbag climbers. Or so I thought then. I aired out the car and got ready for the ranger to approach my ride. He was a jolly, bearded guy who greeted me with a big smile as I told him I was there for the facelift. Do you need a map? he asked. Well, it's been a decade since I've been here, but I think I'm good, I told him. Welcome back, brother, he said with the utmost sincerity. The lady at the entrance station quickly waved me through, and the drive shifted back into sentimentality. Yosemite seems to have a different vibe these days, I thought to myself. Since El Capitan was my goal and singular focus for so long, the sight of it when rolling in always had so much meaning, but I didn't know what meaning to attach to it. Sure, I'd climbed it, but as Warren Harding said after the first ascent, it looked to be in much better shape than I was. Rather than obsessing about a climb, I was simply trying to find my campsite. Since I was a volunteer, and I'd later be presenting a poem on Friday night, I was able to camp for free at a volunteer site. I pulled up the site on my GPS, but as it led me there, all I saw were DO NOT ENTER signs. So I did another lap around the weird roads in the valley, and I ended up in the same place. I figured I'd just park the truck and take a little walk to see what I was missing. Yosemite has always been a difficult place to navigate. As soon as I parked the truck, I ran into my friend Nadine, Taylor's wife, and she pointed out where the campsite was. It was, in fact, right through the Do Not Enter signs, which were put there to keep the general public out. Oh, Yosemite. When I finally found my site, I put all my food and smelly things into the bear box, cracked a beer, and decided to go for a stroll to reminisce. What I experienced that night I can only describe as a flash flood of feelings. Like I just walked into therapy, and my therapist asked me to describe every emotion I'd ever felt while climbing and hanging out in Yosemite. Each formation had a story to retell me. Like, remember when you almost died here? Or remember that six-hour belay when you ate a jar of peanut butter with your grime-stained fingers? The beginning of my Yosemite epic poem is rooted in death. Just a couple weeks before I set sail for the valley for the first time, My friend Josh died in a motorcycle accident. He was only 20, and the very last thing he said to me was, We're survivors. We will survive. The last words he ever wrote to me were, Enjoy the promised land when I told him I was going to Yosemite. I don't know how a 20-year-old could be so prophetic, but ever since I've moved out west, my life was full of these strange circumstances, making me think perhaps we are surrounded by spirits and ghosts. All I know is I don't know truly enough to know about premonitions or if we have an afterlife, but I do know what has been said to me and what has happened to me. I soaked it all in, and it was all too much. I wish I had a trusty friend at my side, but instead I texted those friends, those climbing partners that I share these memories with. I drank sips of beer for those that had died here and those who are no longer with us. For those that would have loved to have made it here. Why am I still alive? Didn't I make similar mistakes? Why was I afforded so many journeys here on nearly every major formation? I got hungry and wandered back to camp. After the sun had gone down, I finally made myself a humble meal of pasta. I knew a good night's sleep would settle my mood and I plan to go for a hike by myself in the morning light to reflect more on a place that held so much of me within it. In recent years, I've realized I have a relatively simple recipe for my mental health. Socialization, sleep, a moderately healthy diet, climbing, yoga, acupuncture, and cardio are essential for me. Even just a good hot shower or a comforting show or movie can be a perfect reset. (laughs) Before COVID hit, I honestly thought I'd never experience deep depression again, but I did. It wasn't just depression, it was numbness. Throughout the pandemic, all I could really focus on was my business and climbing. Like many dirtbag climbers, I've always lived relatively hand to mouth where I wanted and needed more than just living paycheck to paycheck. I wanted a house, health insurance, and a successful business. And when all that was threatened, I went into survival mode, as if all that mattered was keeping my business alive. The zine and the rest of my business did survive, thankfully. I eventually found a therapist when I realized I needed someone to talk to as to not burden my friends, but also to seek out professional help. Damn, I wish I'd done that 20 years sooner because I was still carrying pain and baggage from a time period when I was severely depressed and suicidal. I felt that pain deeply in the first few sessions of therapy. But then I also felt great light and upliftment as I talked about it and confronted it. I wanted to face my demons and I was, and that felt good. The other thing I needed to face again was the stage. Though I am a person who needs just the right amount of alone time, I'm also very extroverted. I never truly realized that until everything shut down and we disconnected from one another. And one of my favorite things in the world is being on a stage, telling a story or reciting a poem, creating that connection with the audience. Over years and years, I've developed a familiarity with being on stage. It's very similar to leading and climbing, the sharp end, but losing that a couple years made the stage seem incredibly intimidating again. I guess it was like not leading for years and then trying to get back into it. For the first couple gigs, the fear and anxiety were almost overwhelming, and I had thoughts of giving up the spoken word side of my profession. Most of these gigs at climber events don't pay any money, and it's an incredible amount of work preparing. I have to practice a poem around 50 to 100 times to memorize it. And even though those gigs don't pay, it's my favorite part of the profession. The words born in my poetry are only truly made alive when they are said, on stage, aloud, to an audience. It's a thrill similar to climbing, living in the moment on the sharp end, living the good life, never for money, always for love. Or as Bob Dylan said in the poem Last Thoughts on Woody Guthrie, there's something on your mind that you want to be saying that somebody someplace ought to be hearing, but it's trapped in your tongue and sealed in your head and it bothers you badly when you're laying in bed. And no matter how you try, you just can't say it. And you're scared of your soul. You just might forget it. That first day of going on a run hike up to the top of Yosemite Falls was glorious. As I woke up that morning and threw down a quick breakfast and tea, I realized I'd never gone on an adventure like this in Yosemite. Every single hike I'd ever done had led to a climb. I was uncertain about my future adventures in Yosemite, Really not sure if I'd have any more in store, but that light and energy hit me quickly on the trail. That's the beauty of love affairs with the natural world. They can be resumed even after a decade pause. I was moving as quickly as possible. The trail was so steep it certainly wasn't running, but it was enough to solicit reactions from some of the people I passed. One guy said, "I'll catch you, you'll slow down at the top." I really didn't give a fuck about passing anyone. I was just going along at the pace of my desire for the feeling. I was so happy and immediately felt the buzz of running combined with being in one of the most beautiful places on the planet. My energy and headspace were restored. Later that day, I'd bought the new Yosemite guidebook. Instead of feeling like I'd done everything in Yosemite I wanted to do, a new door opened. From the looks of the book, there was plenty to keep me occupied for several more lifetimes. Plus, I knew I'd gotten better at crack climbing with all the years spent in the creek in search of the perfect line and the perfect tie. When I bought the book, I also saw my own books on the shelf alongside it. Though my books had been for sale there for years, I'd never seen them with my own eyes. What a trip. How surreal it was. My own stories were available to anyone who would take the risk to buy a copy. And I was coming to the realization that as a writer... I hadn't come to the end with El Cap. It was merely a high point. For a climber, the road goes on forever, and the party never ends, right? The next day, the day I would perform my poem, I finally got out for a climbing session. I was already tired. The night before at my campsite, I was kept awake by a fellow camper who clearly cared more about her cigarettes and boxed wine than any adventure the next day. Sleep is one of those ingredients for me for a happy life and I was deprived of that. Every time this happens, though, I think of the nights when I was the loud drunk one. Surely I kept many a climber awake in the Super Bowl campsite at the creek back in my party days. Taylor and I had only a couple hours, so we opted for some cragging at the cathedral wall. By happenstance, we ended up climbing a 10D corner that I had done on my first ever trip to Yosemite. Two-tent Timmy, my best friend, had led it, and I was in awe. He'd only been climbing for a year or so, and I was amazed by how quickly he'd gotten good at it. I could barely follow that pitch then, and even on this day, I noted how tricky it was. That night, my butterflies calmed down when it was time for my poem. This is what I was used to. If I prepared enough, my mind would get calm. The words are there now, just like a project. It's time to give it your best. When I've known I've prepared enough, a certain peacefulness comes over me. I was sharing the stage with Lauren Delaney Miller and Conrad Anchor that evening, an honor all in itself. Timmy O'Neill was the MC for that evening. I've known Timmy a long time, so long that he remembered that before I became a full-time writer and publisher, I was a dishwasher. So that's how he introduced me, as only Timmy can do, as a hydrotechnician of plates. I've been working through a lot in my life, And on stage in the last year, I'd felt uncomfortable and out of place so many times leading up to this moment. It's these moments in my life when I question everything and wonder whether I'm on the right path, if I made the right decisions and if I'd ever be comfortable on stage again. Starting a memorized poem for me means digging into the mind, giving the audience a gift and an energy, and then sensing what comes back all while trusting that I won't forget the words. As a sensitive person, I noticed the energy intensely. I can tell when people aren't paying attention or they're not into it. It affects the vibration of the words. As I started this one, I felt the crowd hanging on to every word, as if they were uplifting me as well as the poetry I was delivering. It's almost like a magical kiss, something so ordinary. But when it connects, it's heavenly. You're in the moment. Nothing else matters. You're living. The words flowed and connected. It was the feeling I'd been chasing ever since it went away. It was back. I was back. I was in Yosemite and felt deeply connected to the hundreds of people there. Success to me as a writer means earning my living from it. But it also means this connection to my fellow human beings. And that means sharing it freely. We all gathered at the facelift to clean up Yosemite and make it a better place. And yet for me, it was also a reunion. After my poem, I basked in the feeling, the relief that my work was done, and it had gone well. The next day was my last in Yosemite. Only one day left to climb. I still hadn't let a pitch yet, and this would only be day two of climbing, but it didn't matter. All that mattered was the day in front of us. My granite instincts had all gone away, I told myself. I was fine with sandstone and limestone, I told myself. I'd done everything I wanted to do on granite in this lifetime. But here I was, basking in the golden granite, and the sunlight, racking up, the spirit of Yosemite engulfing me. For our warm-up, we decided to link up the first couple pitches of Reed's Pinnacle. Luckily, Taylor remembered to bring stoppers. I hadn't used mine in years and forgot to bring them. A foolish move. I shuffled my way up the granite crack, remembered the art that is granite crack climbing and placing gear in it looking for that constriction to place a nut or the crystal sticking out to marry momentarily with the rubber on your shoe. After a hundred some feet, I was pumped and ran out of gear, but it was just 5'9 climbing and I zoned in. I'll only ever run it out if I have to. As it often is, I only really screwed over my second, Taylor, as the pitch ended with a traverse to the anchor and I didn't have any gear to put in. Sometimes that forced runout drives the mind to an incredibly focused place. Taylor made do, as a tri- trad climber does, and climbed safely to my belay. We wrapped off, our 80-meter rope barely making back to the ground to our first belay ledge. We packed up, went back to the car, and got ready for separate reality. I'd want to do this climb with Mark, as we'd been talking about it for years, and he'd already done it. As a twist of fate, Mark's back had seized up, and he wasn't even able to come out to the valley and work that week. I really missed him at all the evening events. We were looking forward to hanging. But his line, don't save climbs, had even more weight to it. We don't ever know what tomorrow will bring. This afternoon brought us to a rappel, to a massive, sloping ledge before the roof crack that is separate reality, the climb was established by Ron kalk the year I was born, 1978. It appeared to be even steeper than I could have imagined. Plus, the exposure beneath was massive. A thousand feet of air with the Merced River below. Though I've climbed plenty of 12A in my life, I felt incredibly intimidated. As intimidated I felt on my very first trip to Yosemite. Often two climbers will be eager to get the lead, but I had no problem with Taylor taking the sharp end. The heart of the climb is the roof crack, and the glory is the finish of that crack at the lip. But I'd never known that that even the start is tricky, a wide, steep section that is best to lay back. Taylor went up and down, but quickly figured it out, and then embarked on the hand jams at the roof. He did quite well, moving efficiently while trying to place the right gear, but he eventually took a whipper at the crux. I caught him, and he figured out the finish. On top rope, I still felt out of my element and intimidated, Hand jams are hand jams, I told myself, as I dangled there horizontally. I made it to the crux and hung, patient to know that today was a day of reconnaissance and not sending. The final lip was glorious, and not as hard as I expected. The seeds had been planted for a project, to return again to Yosemite, some day. That evening, I talked about our glorious failure to any friend who would listen. Failure is so much of a part of our process as climbers, yet I don't know if it gets highlighted enough when we tell our stories. I'm a master of failure. I even like it. I like discussing it, and even though I'm like everyone else, I'm a human with an ego. I've accepted that most climbing days on a project are training under the guise of failure. I only climbed four pitches on this trip, surely the lowest I've ever done in Yosemite, even on a rainy trip. Yet this trip held a richness and a reset that I'm still contemplating and savoring. I'm still a workout freak. I always need my exercise and routine with climbing and cardio. But I can sense that I'm moving towards a different place, a place of continued striving. But not just striving for the big climb. I did the big climbs. I know what the mountaintop feels like. Every time I can return to Yosemite, I can visit that feeling, if only briefly. I also know every time I feel the pain of grief, the reality of how close I came to death there, and the constant renewal that nature provides. Climbers in our 40s have all been dealt a hand that had some luck in it. We know how precious it all is. It can all be gone tomorrow. If our bodies are holding up, we can still live out the dreams of our youth. We are the old schoolers who are very much alive and thriving in the new school. I left Yosemite with no idea, what the place still meant to me, or any of my climbing dreams still existed there. I came home with the answer that so much of who I became as a climber and a human is still rooted in Yosemite. I'll still have projects there for as long as I can climb, and at this moment of repose, made possible through writing, it seems like the road does go on forever, and the climbing never ends. all right that was the third episode of season five you all enjoyed that one it was really fun to reread and you know as a writer i think that climbing big objectives gives you the perfect fodder for something to write about but as i've gotten older i still have the same passion for climbing but it's not the same passion for risk or even big wall climbs it's the passion is more condensed into shorter climbs and I had this era of being obsessed with Yosemite, and then I had this era of being obsessed with the creek, and now I'm in this new era. I still have the passion for climbing, and I'm just discovering where that goes, and it's totally okay for that passion to be condensed into something shorter and even new areas. Uh, Perhaps it's Mexico where I've been spending so much time. Music for this episode is from Devin Dabney. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. And signing off on a beautiful sunny day in Durango, Colorado, I'm Luke Mijal. Peace.